Hello and welcome to Back to Britpop, it's Chris. Uh, on this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by the Southampton local legend Dan O'Farrell of Accrington Stanley. Formed back in 1986, the band released several albums through the 90s. Fathom in 1990, Lovebound in 94, Half-Life in 96, and have sort of continued to record music ever since. Dan talks to me about early influences of the band, the music he grew up listening to, how he formed the band, chasing the record deal, moving to London, John Peel. It was a really fantastic chat uh, with Dan and really enjoyed it. As always, I'll be back after the interview to talk about where you can find me on social media and all the other bits and pieces. In the meantime, enjoy the interview. Is it just a lover's nature? Welcome to the podcast, Dan O'Farrell. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Those who don't, uh, won't know, actually listeners to the podcast won't know that Dan O'Farrell have a personal connection because we're friends and also come from Southampton. Uh, but you've been in a band called Accrington Stanley for many years, if not decades, haven't you? Yes. We started at young at school and it, it kept going Accrington Stanley for a long, long time. And we, you know, we even played last year. We don't play much now anymore, but... We, uh, we put put together something sort of at the start of this year, actually, start of 2020. So, yeah, it's 30 years or something. Crikey. You formed way back in 86. Am I right there? Yes, that is good research. <laughs> <laughs> and what instigated this for you, though? What, what, what got you into music and how did you start to become a songsmith? Okay, so, um, yeah, it, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I just remember getting, I think I got a guitar when I was sort of maybe 12 or something, um, but I couldn't tune it. Um, I didn't have any lessons. But I'd always kind of loved playing records, like my dad's records mainly, and he was into sort of Buddy Holly and sort of Elvis and Eddie Cochran and Gene Vincent. So we had all that music in the house, and I was always, you know, loved it and fascinated with it. I guess you know most most people are at that age, aren't they? Mm-hmm. And then at a certain point, I had this guitar sat in my room which I couldn't even tune, and at a certain point, I sort of worked how to tune it. And my dad was also trying to learn at the same time, and he showed me a couple of chords. Um, I didn't have any formal lessons, but I just persevered. I, you know, probably just twelve-year-old boredom. Um, persevered and started to learn some chords. Um, maybe I was a bit younger. Maybe I was more like ten or eleven. I started to learn. You know, and then I suddenly realised once you had three chords, actually you could make a song and sing over that. And the, the blessing for me was, I think I did that before I was self-conscious. If you see what I mean. So I was, you know, I, I wrote a load of songs when I was sort of eleven and twelve, which were, you know, probably not great if I'm honest, um, but were I was unembarrassed about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, so, you know, I think if it happened to me a year later, I would have been terribly coy and shy and um, probably would have never played a song to anyone. Because you, you started so young and being able to sort of put words together and chords together and, and write something, do you think from that age you knew that was kind of something you, would, you wanted to follow seriously? Or was it just um, something you, would, you were just doing for fun at that stage? Yeah, I mean, I don't know about seriously, but I think it was... It was something that once I discovered I loved doing it, I couldn't stop doing it. If you saw I me, mean, it was one of those things that, you know, I, I, you know, at certain points I thought, oh, I could make a living out of this. But I think at that point, you know, erroneously as it turns out, but at that point I was, I was just like, oh, I love doing this. You know, this is really good fun. I, felt, I you know, I guess, you know, there's probably all sorts of reasons why people sort of write or create or paint or, or write songs. And there's a sort of certain therapeutic quality to it, isn't there? But yeah, I just, I, I knew, I think as soon as I wrote a couple of songs, I thought, well, I want to keep doing this. I don't, you know, I want to get better at it. So it, it became 
not something I chose to do, it was just something that I did, if, if that makes sense. So when did you think about, you know, this, the band, and when did you start sort of thinking about forming a band and playing and gigging? So I sort of, as soon as I'd learned to play guitar, really, I, I played a little bit with um, Chris Walsh, who drums with me now, um, and um, was in the early Outcomes of Stanley's and the late Outcomes of Stanley. Um, we used to play together at junior school at Spring Hill. Um, so I just kept rehearsing with him, and for a long time it was just guitar and drums. We had names like, I remember at one point we were called Nothing to Do with Fruit. And then... You got the um, original White Stripes. Yes, that's right. It was, and it, we used to run out, I mean, God bless his parents. They used to let us rehearse for ages in his, in his parents' bedroom on a Saturday afternoon with his dad's old PA system. His dad was a musician in the 60s, was um, a bass player. Once stood in for jo- John Entwistle in high numbers, apparently, at an early hoogie. Um, so we just practiced that, you know, that was great. And we just used to write, you know, we used to write and write and write and play and play and play. And then um friend from school Richard Stark joined on bass and suddenly we're a bit more of a band and then I suppose the key moment was um sometime I would have been like fourth year at school I guess like so aged 14 15 um I met Richard Barrett who I call Baz um who was a keyboard player and he joined the band so suddenly we were a four piece um called F Yes Bubble for <laughs> reasons that I won't go into um and we were doing sort of a lot of songs that I'd written and some songs that we'd written together and also we do a quite terribly lengthy cover of Light My Fire by the Doors and a few sort of velvety things and you know sort of Lou Reed songs and I don't know how proficient we got but you know we were certainly enthusiastic and played a lot and then at a certain point that mutated because uh, Richard Stark went off and formed his own band and it was just me Baz and Chris and that's when we called ourselves Atkinson Stanley so it's almost seamless do you know I mean it wasn't like a but it just kind of grew out of a previous band. Did you, did you all come with different kind of musical backgrounds or did you all come with different um, uh, musical influences rather or, or were you all kind of listening to the same sort of stuff? Yeah that's a good question I think Baz and I ended up listening to quite similar stuff although you know he he had an older brother who was really into sort of more sort of proggy things I remember yes and bebop deluxe his brother used to sort of, and then he used to share which was interesting and I guess but being a keyboard player I think he was really into the doors so he brought that to the party because obviously Raymond Zirek was a hero um but there was I don't know I don't know about you but there was a certain thing that indie kids in the 80s listened to almost like you went through the doors to the velvets mm. um you know having probably heard the Beatles for your parents at the same time as you're listening to all the sort of 80s indie bands so that was kind of our diet, um, you know, and certain things popped up, like obviously the Smiths were a big one and R.E.M. And for us, it was the go-betweens and um, the violent femmes. And there was a certain almost, you could almost rely on people, you know, if you were into, if you're born in 1970 or thereabouts, there are certain bands, if you liked indie that you got into. Um, mm. Chris, the drummer, actually was was from a slightly different, you know, he went to a different school to us and I think he had slightly different influences and was much more kind of Catholic in his tastes and liked a bit of everything kind of thing. Your friendship with uh, with Richard and was, some, was obviously something that's, that's lasted the entirety of the of, of the band yeah and and I guess you're the glue I guess essentially aren't you uh, would you say? Yeah I think I think so yeah we, yeah we just, we're sort of the worked out we're the only sort of constant members <laughs> since yeah. 1986 um, yeah and I, yeah and that was you know that's always been a very a very sort of intense and important friendship hopefully for both of us was there a moment in those early sort of practices you were thinking oh this is this could go somewhere well i think i mean i don't i don't know but i think all bands think that of themselves at certain points yeah <laughs> um because you you know you have that thing don't you where you form a band like right we're going to get a name and then like you spend hours and hours and 
possibly weeks and weeks coming up with a name and then you think oh yeah our posters can look like this and I'll you know certainly in my world you know you, you a lot of being in a band is that kind of planning your world domination um partially tongue-in-cheek but partially seriously I think mm. um and I think with us you know it probably started just as like oh this would be really good fun and then you know at a certain point you talk about it so much that you think well we could you know what's not? and I you know I think that's a good attitude to have actually because otherwise you'd never do anything would you probably the interesting thing for Akin to Stanley as opposed to some of the other bands that you're you've interviewed and will be interviewing is that we never quite made it do you know what I mean we were, we were we never quite got what we wanted and so it's kind of you know I look back at that really sort of with a real sort of sense of kind of bittersweetness now and that kind of you know we had such great plans and we had you know we did think yeah we could do this and we nearly did and didn't quite come off for us and it's kind of like that kind of you know i wouldn't don't regret a minute of the of the world domination planning <laughs> it's yeah. such good fun but um yeah it's, it's interesting you know it makes you realize what it takes to be in that situation actually and actually kind of make that next step or whatever but you had some some real highlights didn't you in in terms of those early in the 80s well late 80s and 90s where you were doing festivals and um you know being lots of radio play and, and, and quite a, a, an established loyal following was starting to emerge wasn't it in those early days yeah yeah we, we you know we had that thing that when you're a band like at, at sort of sixth form and your mates are just about old enough to come to pubs you know you get you, you know we, we did really well out of that. We had a real, we used to do a regular Wednesday night at a Greek restaurant called Mykonos in Southampton. <laughs> and, we, and that was great. You know, we had so many people coming to see us. And and the nice thing about the Southampton music community at that point was our age group, but then older people who were also in bands or around that scene also kind of really liked us. And well, yeah, a lot of them did. And we, we, we ended up having, yeah, really good following Southampton. And then um, a little bit later on, we tried to repeat the same thing in London. And, you know, we we, we certainly kind of, grew it you know we, mm. we gave it a good, a good shot on that level so when with the move to london were you studying there uh, uh together or was that just a, a complete move to follow the music so it kind of well it happened in stages though. so we were you know we did this we all worked really hard in southampton and um, played here a lot and then age 18 i went off to manchester uni which was kind of nearly a sort of band breaking moment but actually we managed to then keep playing and we you know, played a lot in Southampton during the holidays, recorded during the holidays, and then did quite a few gigs up in Manchester as well, which was just when all the mad Chester stuff was happening. So yeah, that was quite a, you know quite a good time to to be there. It's one of one of the sort of the ironies of Rackham Stanley is that we were we were sort of quite often in the right place at the right time, but obviously we're just wearing the wrong trousers. You know, we didn't <laughs> quite <laughs> didn't quite fit in. We weren't quite baggy enough for the Manchester scene, but we you know we did some, we did some good gigs up there, and then. Um, and then after that, once I'd finished uni, we sort of had a bit of more sort of record label interest and it seemed you know, like everything was just on the verge of happening and we, we grad- graduated to London kind of thing. We ended up there. What album were you sort of pushing at that? Would that, would that have been Fathom or would that have been Love so Fathom was Yeah, Fathom was the album that we put out uh, when I was at Manchester, which I'm still really proud of. We've, ne- we've never, man- never managed to put it out digitally since because... Um, we haven't managed to get hold of the master tapes and we've tried to master it a few times from vinyl and it hasn't quite sounded good enough to our ears yet um we're still working on that uh but yeah that was that was our first thing that we put out on vinyl we put out cassettes before that uh in southampton and then fathom we 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 saved up all the gig money and put it out on record yeah and that was really exciting that was kind of what we were that was what we were putting our faith in 
it was a massive deal to have a physical product, wasn't it, in your hands? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah oh God, it's so exciting. I remember getting those back from like the pressing plant or whatever and just like, or the, or the test pressing, like, oh my God, <laughs> but on black plastic, yeah. Lovebound sort of followed more or less four years later, didn't it, in 94? Yes, so Lovebound, yeah, was like our, our, our shot at, you know, making the perfect album because at that point we had a lot of songs and we decided that, Lovebound was going to be like the very best of the songs that we had at that point. So it was even one that got re-recorded from Fathom. Um, and by that point, we were gigging a lot and we had management and we were, um, you know, we'd been out to Japan. We sort of, it was supposed to be the culmination of all that kind of build kind of thing. So that, how did the Japan uh, festival, uh, how did that get presented to you what happened so, so that was yeah that was like a real as a real you know a real moment for us that we um at, by this point we were managed by um two people a, a school friend of ours called john titcomb who'd been like with us all the way through and had been sort of produced our early recordings and he was really into the band and really and really sort of eager to sort of help us and be and become a manager himself um but he was working with a guy called steve hepworth who uh was actually uh in a band who were one of the sort of the new wave of British metal back in the um, late 70s band called Vardis. Um, and he was working with John, or John was working with him at the, they were, they were both in theatre. John became like a theatre production designer and lighting guy. Um, and Steve sound at theatres. So they, John played Steve our stuff and Steve really liked it. And he was like excellent for his, he, he kind of, um, you know, he'd been in bands, he had lots of friends at, in the music business and he knew stuff, but he, this particular thing, getting to Japan he just heard something on um, GLR radio saying someone being interviewed saying we're, we're looking for an, an, a British band to take out to Tokyo for the Sumitomo pop festival send in your demos kind of thing he sent in a, a demo and we you know we got we got we got selected it was a bit like a sort of I don't know some kind of x-factor moment <laughs> <laughs> I think they came to see us play at some point and they liked us and uh, so yeah that was crazy and so we went out you know we got flown out to flown out to Tokyo and had sort of I think it was six days of actually feeling like proper rock stars <laughs> and sort of film crews following us around and stuff like this. And what was the rough age of the band at that point? So I think we were early 20s. I think I was yeah. 22 at that point. So very exciting, you know, it was like kind of, and you know, it goes to your head a bit, you think, yes, this is it, we've made it. <laughs> well, <laughs> what, what happened when you came home then? Was it, was it a sort of deflation feeling or were you just I still mean, high on it? And how long did it kind of... Well, yeah, I mean, obviously there, there was a kind of, there was a real high of kind of doing that and, you know, playing in front of 12,000 people and um, Japanese TV and stuff. And it's available on YouTube if you want to see it. But then, yeah, but then you come back and then, you know, I think our next gig was at the Bull and Gate in Kentish Town where you're suddenly back to playing to 20 people or 30 yeah. people. Or whatever. And um, you come back to Earth pretty quickly. And I, I suppose, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you found this in your, in your musical experiences, but the kind of the, the lovely but fatal thing about music and the music industry or whatever is that you're always sort of hoping for the next thing and you always kind of you almost string yourself along even if no one else strings you along you string yourself along with the promises of greatness yeah definitely um, yeah and um, it does it does become quite tiring especially especially when the older you get as you know you get one good thing or one good review or one local radio play and then it and then you just think oh yes but then there's such a it becomes the that becomes to be such a, a big gap in between those moments that you That's have to, right, yeah. And, yeah, and you have to be yeah. quite realistic. It, it's hard, isn't it? And and it's that thing like, um, yeah, you know, you you do you put 
blood, heart, soul, passion, you know, sweat, time, money into it. Um, but you always think, oh, if only I'd push that a little bit harder, <laughs> a little yeah. bit more. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a tough one, that. It's a tough one. I'm sure, you know, any musician who isn't Alton John has probably been through that, I guess. I said goodbye to the old me. I said hello to the new. I shook hands with the enemy. With that period of time in the 90s, you had Lovebound in 94, then a couple of years, couple of years later, you, you released uh, Half-Life. But during that, that sort of what we call Britpop era or when indie sort of British indie music was taking on the world. Essentially we were selling, it was selling records globally and doing very well. Were you feeling that, you know, in your Accrington Stanley bubble as well, were you trying to sort of capitalize on it in a way? Um, I don't know about capitalizing on it. I, I suppose, you know, I suppose on a very basic level, you, you know, at that, at that time, what you wanted to happen was to be signed, wasn't it? I'm not sure mm. it's still the truth now, but you know, that was, that would have probably what we can, you know, that was the next step for us. Um, that we sort of convinced ourselves would would make the big difference and we were perpetually for a few years sort of on the fringes of that and close to that and um this a&r man and that a&r man and this record company's putting in a rehearsal room and this you know and, we, and you know we had some really good stuff out of it but it never quite came off and i suppose we were left thinking well why not why you know and and i think maybe we just were slightly out of sync with that Britpop thing i think we were maybe we maybe um I don't know. I don't know. I, I kind of. I remember. The, I remember the excitement of the time. You know, I remember like because um, we were in London at that point when Britpop started to buy, it, and I remember sort of, you know, early suede gigs and all this going on, and suddenly, you know, we lived up near Kentish Town for a bit, and Kilburn sort of sort of not only sort of walk past a good mixer and see various members of Oasis tumbling out the door and stuff. In fact, my mate Ray stole Liam Gallagher's fifty p off the pool table. <laughs> um, so. And actually, there's a moment in our career, which which I sometimes think back and sort of laugh bitterly to myself, where when we when we put Love Band out, we did a tour, and it was a completely self-booked tour, um, and we went, you know, up the country. It was good, you know. We went as, as far north as I've got on the wall here, actually. So Hampton, Manchester, Leicester, Coventry, Walsall, Birmingham, Worcester, Swindon. Yeah, it was it was it was a proper month touring. Yeah. Um, and we played at Coventry Poly. I'm reading it off the wall now. Saturday the seventh. May, I think it was Coventry Poly. <laughs> I mean, a really good night, really good gig. And like, um, it was like an indie club night at Coventry Poly, and we went down really well. Um, only slightly spoiled by there being a fire alarm during our encore. Um, and we had a really good night. And, the, and then the, the DJ, or the, who was also the guy who booked us, I think, the guy, you know, came up to us after and said, Oh, that was really good. We've had two really banging Saturdays in a row. And we've had you guys this week. Last week, we had this band called Oasis. <laughs> and, wow. I, I, don't, I remember, I think, you know, it's sort of about, it. well, that moment, you know, we were kind of, you know, almost on the same page. Um, and then, of course, <laughs> the career arcs differed after that. Would you describe your music as a little bit more, um, I don't want to say arty, because that sounds a bit derogatory, because it's not what I mean. Yeah. But do you, do you know <laughs> no, what I mean? I do, I do know what you mean. Yeah, we were never that direct, I think. And yeah. maybe we always had, uh, possibly we were... You know, I try and look at it through these various A&R men and says, possibly we were just a bit too confusing as a, as a thing because we, we were quite folky in places. We had sort of weird stuff going on with cellos and we were never sort of the, the classic Britpop bands at the time. There was a certain directness to it, wasn't it? There was a certain sort of, yeah. you know, those early Oasis records. It was quite Route 1 in a way and, and we were always a bit too <laughs> fuzzy for that, I think. Well, you meandered in a, in a way in terms of, your influences and what you wanted to to sort of 
develop in terms of your sound was always there to hear. It was, it was never, it was, it was complicated, but not unlistenable. It was all very, not commercial sounding at all, but there was, it was, there was a, such a pleasant sound to it all, but you were hearing different things that potentially, as you say, weren't happening in the music industry at the time. Yeah, I mean, yeah, thank you. I, I think, I think we sort of felt a bit out of step with it. Do you know what I mean? Like, kind yeah. of, we didn't think, oh, you know, apart from that one night where we sort of crossed paths with Oasis, whatever, but we didn't, we, we realised we weren't quite the same proposition as, you know, if you think about some of the bands who got sort of signed in the, in the sort of the, um, the second wave of it, you know, once it really became a thing, you know, people like men, menswear and people like that, we, we certainly didn't feel like we had that much in common with that. It all seemed a bit, I don't know, we felt a bit more outsiderish, I guess, and mm. <laughs> possibly willfully so, and possibly to our own detriment. Yeah, yeah. Um, Record companies were jumping on themselves to create or get uh, other versions of what we already had. Uh, yes, uh, yes. And, and yeah, so if you're moving away or trying, to, if you're establishing your own identity and your own sound, you, you were you were probably going against, definitely going against the grain in that sense. Yeah. Yeah, so so I, it was a bit, you know, I I think it's a bit similar to us as as the whole Manchester thing. We were kind of we were we were we were on the same page, but on a very different paragraph somehow. For the, the times when you know the times when we could have possibly been part of that movement, we weren't really, um, and possibly a part of us was quite pleased with that. <laughs> Do you know what yeah, I mean? yeah, Hopefully, yeah. Well, with Half Life that came out in '96, were you using songs that you'd written on the road, or was this was there a new sound to this record? Um, or? Half Life was a very different circumstance. Actually, Half Life was kind of um, almost like well, we we didn't die, but at the point we felt the band might be about to die. <laughs> Sounds very depressing, doesn't it? Um, so, so Love Band was recorded with like the enthusiasm of we've just come back from Japan. This is it. We're going to push over the top now. Um, by the time we got to Half Life, the big thing that happened was our bass player had left. Um, a guy called Sam Burgess who is still a fabulous musician and plays a lot of jazz now. He plays at Ronnie Scott's and that Ronnie Scott's touring band. Um, so fair play to him. You know, he went ahead and, and made a living out of it. Um, but I think sometime around about 95, I think it must have been, maybe even early 96, 95. I think he, he just, he, you know, it was all, it was all fairly amicable, but he, he decided that, you know, he wanted to go off and do jazz and, and other music and didn't want to sort of play four chord indie anymore. Occasionally there were five chords. Um, <laughs> so, so fair. So we were sort of we were a little bit in limbo for a while, and then we were, then we kind of realised that you know the first year of the band, Baz had done keyboard bass like a Rayman Zirek, and he's very good at that. Baz, he's got got that left hand. So we went back to that setup, and that was a four piece with Rufus on guitar and cello, and Alex Bridge on drums. Um, so actually we were we were gigging and, and sounding strong I and mean, it took us a while to get over not having a bass player but actually the way we could work then was very streamlined because you know the bands was on it you know we weren't making any money <laughs> you know this is yeah. always the way isn't it? and as you get we suddenly hit that point where actually people need to pay their rent you know whereas before we might have been students and we might have um managed to bug some housing benefit suddenly it got a bit more difficult to do that um so the band either had to be a, a going concern that paid our rent or it had to be a a sort of secondary thing where we all got day jobs. And I think it's that that point I started doing teacher training, and so Alex decided he was going to join the army. I think that's what's going to happen because um, he needed to pay his rent. And we we literally went into record half life to get the songs down, the live set down before he went off and you know travelled the world kind of thing. It was quite funny because we literally in were like, well, let's just record everything kind of live, and we probably won't do much with it, but at least we got it. You know, there was a, we were very defeatist by that moment. 
Um, and actually, we went in and it sounded wonderful. It's this really lovely studio we went to. And we ended up coming back again and again to overdub it. And the songs got a, you know, Baz was in his Brian Wilson element and lots of kind of mad arrangements were going on. Um, so actually really proud of that album. But by the time we actually managed to release it, it was kind of, the moment was gone. It was quite a sad thing. And actually, I almost think we, we almost kind of shot ourselves in the foot and we didn't release it for a couple of years. I think we could have, you know, we recorded it then, but I'm not sure it actually came out then. Um, and partly that was almost like us going, well, you know, we know it's good. We don't need to show it to anyone else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is not a particularly um, attitude guaranteed to induce success, I must say. I don't advise, <laughs> recommend that one. Um, like, yeah, we've recorded something really brilliant, but you can't hear it. <laughs> <laughs> So, in fact, it lived on a DAP tape. This is the really sad bit. I remember, you know, the studio put it, gave it to us on a DAP tape, if you remember those. Oh, yeah, I yeah. Just remember, I just remember it kind of sitting on my mantelpiece um, for a long time, and we couldn't actually get into the DAP tape. <laughs> None of us had a DAP player. <laughs> there wasn't any money left to go and find someone with a DAP player. So we just kind of sulked at it for quite a while. Um, but it is now available, I'm happy to report, on all, all digital platforms, and, and actually has some really good songs in it. Without recording, did you do anything sort of in terms to, to push that, a and R way or record company way, or were you because you self produced or everything, didn't you? Essentially, you put it out on your own kind of label. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, Love Bound, we did Love Bound. Um, you yeah, know, was was produced by Steve, our manager, and and you know, we really pushed that and we got distribution on it, and we um, people bought it, not not in the thousands or anything, but people bought it, and and we toured it, and we kind of um. Was, you know, having a distribution deal was real. I really remember walking to HMV and there it was, kind of thing in in London, and going, "Wow, yeah, yeah." My record's there, and I didn't actually bring it in myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Half Life, no, Half Life was was the one we sat on and sulked and wondered if the world was deserved to hear it, kind of thing. Um, so, and maybe you know, maybe that looking back, maybe that was a mistake. Maybe we should have, you know, when you when you see those sliding parallel door moments, maybe if, maybe if. You know, Jeff Hughes from Beggar's Bankrupt Records had had it land on his desk that soggy Monday all, all could have been different. Yeah. Um, but I think that thing we were saying earlier, I think we'd all reached a point, certainly me and Baz had, of, of feeling a bit embattled and embittered and a bit fed up of waiting for guys in suits to, to tell you it was okay. Do you see what I mean? <laughs> so kind of, yeah. By that point, you'd had your heart broken a few times um, by sort of A&R men and, and promises that didn't happen. And, and so... A slightly different attitude prevailed by 1986, 1996. We were a bit more kind of world weary, bloodied, world weary. That's a good, that's a good phrase for it. Yeah. I made my social worker cry. All I did was ask the time that his goldfish took to die. When I left it in the a few years ago, now you kind of had a, a sort of a second not a second wind because you've kind of been recording ever since 96 really you had a, yeah. an album out in 2005 and then um there was a longer break wasn't there between uplift which came out in 2005 and then we had a bit more material in sort of around 2012 is that about right yes yeah yeah um there were lots of sort of unreleased stuff in the, in the middle of all those things it's kind of quite you know there were albums that we started and, but yeah those were the ones that we've actually ended up sort of releasing and when did the the, the john peel thing come about because it, it was quite a, a, a local story here in our um uh, yeah, we made yeah. on to South today. Yeah. <laughs> so we were pay. We were, you know, we we had some John Peel plays. Not not loads, not many, but we, you know, he played us, and we, you know, we sent him our records and wrote him letters, and we tried to phone him a few times, and and frustratingly, I never heard it. It was always one of those things that, like, 
someone said, oh, you were on John Peel last night, and you'd listen the next four nights, you wouldn't play, and then, <laughs> so, um, so that was quite, I, I thought that, well, yeah, I'm really glad he played us, but it's kind of quite sad. And then what happened to us that was lucky and nice and really sort of gratifying was um, at some point, must have been 2011, maybe, they put out a website that um, was the John Peel Archive, and what someone did was they started to, scan his records and photograph his records and catalogue them um, and then they'd even take photos of the letters that were inside the records and it just so happened that the first hundred the you know the first hundred they put up on this website was the from the a section um, and two of those first hundred records were ours um, fathom and lovebound um, the vinyl copies and there were quite a lot of attention for this you know because it's the first time that john Peel's record archive had been seen mm. um, and I start to see articles saying oh you know there's some real lots of things you'd expect in here some real surprises uh, two of the records on a band called Akron Stanley who's no one ever, no one's ever heard of kind of thing <laughs> so and by this point I'd got over my bitterness and in battle and I thought well I know I will well we'll try and tell the world about this so I am um, uh, you know I fired off a couple of emails to the people who'd written these articles for well, Akron Stanley are actually this band here in Southampton and and I, it, for some reason we just got a lot of quite a lot of attention for it and suddenly you know local radio and local tv and were interested I think may, mainly because John Peel was held in such high regard you know yeah and particularly those people who work in broadcasting they all idolize John Peel to a certain extent so yeah for once having you know spent years kind of managing to turn actively avoid any publicity or, or, or you know we actually dined out on that a little bit and it was it was quite nice it got a bit of a sort of attention and, and there were some some nice online articles and there was there was a one that kind of traced the history of the band on um the quietus which is like a kind of interesting website mm -hmm. and uh and yeah and that really that, that was nice it felt like you know it felt like it felt nice to get a bit to be a bit better known for a little bit and um and that certainly fed into kind of our mood and and ebullience for a look for a while and you know it's nice to be associated with peel i think people now maybe or younger people maybe don't realize quite how marginalized sort of indie music was and guitar music was in the 80s and early 90s you know it's kind of like mm. it was it was a real kind of minority interest wasn't it you know like bands that are revered now weren't you know weren't particularly bothering the charts then sort of thing um it, it was it just became the thing that happened with Britpop is that music went more overground and went more mainstream. Um, but for a long time, you know, so John Peel was like your ally in this fight yeah, yeah. against against everyone else, you know. Because I, I missed John Peel in terms of my because of my age. So I was yeah. uh, I was um, Steve Lamack and Joe Wiley, and then Mark right, and yeah. Mark and Lard. They were yes, they were they, they were did the same job. Yeah, yeah they'd be essentially yeah, exactly, and the, I suppose they were, had a bit more of a commercial. Uh, stance to them because yes they yeah. you know the BBC at the time were, were pushing and pushing British music and all these bands were just you know but the good thing about I think um, Steve Lamack and Joe Wiley that well those two shows the evening sessions was they were playing a lot of uh, music from from the states as well so you weren't just being yes. bombarded with Britpop and British indie you were getting the pavements and the Sebados and all the other stuff yeah. as well Cannonball exactly. and all that sort of thing so yeah you could you could really dine out on on that kind of you know the uh, the American wave of, of grungy not grunge yeah. that wasn't quite happening but that kind of indie and then you could you could then feast on on the real British pulp and if you really wanted to blur and all that sort of real acquaintance yeah that's right yeah stuff. but yeah the pill thing was you know we were lucky to for him to have obviously brought 
brought that in, in some ways to the forefront i guess yeah and it's it's hard i don't know if, you know people go back and who haven't heard john but if you go back and actually listen to some of it some of it's online or some of his shows i mean my god like the stuff he's playing it's, it's so eclectic sometimes dreadful to, to be fair <laughs> I mean, but so eclectic you know it's almost like you can't quite imagine a radio dj on national radio getting away with it now kind of thing yeah, yeah. Once he, he you know he'd play like he'd play a joy division session track and then like um, some really deep reggae that you'd never heard before, then some new hip hop thing. And then he'd play like a spoken word description of how to perform a surgical operation. And then <laughs> it just totally willful. Um, but, you know, kind of it took you on a journey, you know, so like you just, you'd have to kind of be prepared to leave the room occasionally and go, oh God. <laughs> Do you think this uh, this is sort of spurred you on to to, to carry to, to to write new material and to get the band back together for to, to part pardon the sort of the old phrase, but yeah, it kind of kicked you back into gear in a way, didn't you? Because you've kind of reformed. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, we so the interesting thing is we never stopped really, but there were there were some very fallow years where we didn't play very much. Um, I was still writing and and you know still writing occasionally with Baz and Rufus but we didn't get to gig very much mainly because we had young children you know and that, that happens but we never kind of stopped we'd still get together and do the, the occasional gig and then yeah then we suddenly got a bit more we got to the point where actually no we we don't want to completely stop and we kind of then we really there was a nice moment where we did the album exactly which about the same time as the John Peel stuff happened we really kind of whipped ourselves into shape and we kind of um actually as a three-piece again at that point because uh, Alex the drummer had um he got fed up with driving down from Oxford which I completely don't blame him for um <laughs> to do very lowly paid gigs um so we did it as a three-piece and Baz did drum programming so that album sounds really different because it's got some drum loops on it and kind of you know it was, but it was a real labor of love we did it all at Rufus's house we didn't even go to a studio and we just worked and worked and worked on that like you know weeknights we were all working um and then we sort of yeah then we sort of we we gigged quite a lot the few years after that because we were really proud of the music and really proud of the songs um at certain so the only time we actually really stopped was I think on our sort of 30th year or something, we, we Baz said he didn't really want to sort of keep keep doing it at, the, at that point. So, but then we sort of re- we sort of properly reformed to do my 50th birthday gig last January. Um, so at the moment we're on hiatus again, but we were talking about you know maybe maybe doing an Acme Stanley show almost annually if we can get the get it together kind of thing. But we'll see. And you're you're continuing to perform well, but I say you were saying pre-lockdown you were playing. Uh, most most of the time you were very active in terms of your playing solo and with your other musical projects with the difference engine and things so as i say you, you've basically do you feel like you've um you've come into a, another stage of your writing and I, your musical career yes i do um i feel like i found my voice bizarrely do you know what i mean, I, I, mean mm. I know this is probably how how us all us aging musicians maybe delude ourselves but um i generally feel that i've sort of for me what happened was two things what I got it was a bit frustrating after Stanley not being able to play that often um and I really realized I really missed it and suddenly you realize you're not getting any younger so part of my motivation in sort of starting to play solo shows was just to get out more and, and play more because if it's just you and a guitar then you can say yes and you don't have to ask four other people you know mm. um and so that was that was very liberating and then in doing that I started to write a bit differently because it was just me and a guitar so you know I couldn't rely on 
you know, when you're in a band, you know how the band works and you know that there's going to be a, a solid beat and that, you know, in my band, I knew that Baz could do a fantastic keyboard solo here and that there could be a, a beautiful harmony there. And so you, you, you write with that, when it's just you and a guitar, um, suddenly I was writing songs which were a bit more wordy and a bit more, um, you know, things like your Facebook feed is not the world, which were much more personal in a way, do you know what I mean? And, and mm-hmm. it could be a bit more quirky and humorous and political, what have you. So yeah, I think I, I think I, I found a different voice and, um, and also I reached a certain age where I stopped caring what other people thought, which is mm. <laughs> probably a terrible thing that happens, you know, and you end up being a very embarrassing 50 year old. But, um, I don't know that, that there's a there's a thing that you go through maybe in your in your 20s and 30s where you do still worry about you know you, even though you know you're not cool you kind of want to be cool and I think at a certain point maybe in my mid 40s I kind of shed that and mm. at least to my own kind of mental state and and so I just thought well you know I just want to play as much as I can so I so that's been liberating I, I feel I feel sort of liberated towards it um, and doing it under my own name frees me up to do that I just find I'm a happier person if I'm getting music out there um, because I love you know I love writing songs bottom line um, but there's nothing sadder than a song you write and then never sing to anyone I think um, and I've got plenty of those so um, I just kind of yeah I just like getting it out there and it's kind of you know at this point I'm not totally deluding myself that the next song is going to be a number one single although I do still a bit. Is the writing process like therapy for you in a way? Yeah totally and, and I've, um, my situation now is that I've got a shed at the bottom of my garden um, which isn't, you know, isn't huge, um, but it's got a, you know, a microphone in it and a couple of speakers, and I can come down to my shed with my guitar and and write something, and it's it's, it's literally bliss. You know, it's kind of yeah. that 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 you know when you when you when you didn't have anything, or maybe you just you know maybe there's just a couple of chords in your head and you come down, and then you come back two hours later and you've got a song you're really proud of. And then you come back and add a couple of other bits, and suddenly you've got a recording of it that you like. You know, that's that's yeah, that's like massive grin for the rest of the day then and, and you feel like you've achieved something um and literally i think i geek because then i want to play that song to people you know so it's kind mm. of yeah it's that so what's the future hold then i mean you've got you've got a a new single coming out i believe haven't you for for the yeah. difference engine yes so um we've just recorded our third album or i say just we started it back in uh december i think it was we were into the initial recordings um uh, which is called Richard Scarry Lied to Me, um, which again will cut out half the audience age-wise. Um, but uh, yeah, and well, I'm really proud of it. Um, for the first time since Love Band, I've actually worked with a producer. Um, which It was a guy called Andy Lewis. He was Paul Weller's bass player for eight years. But before that, during Britpop, he was a, a DJ and a, um, he was in a band called Pimlico uh, and another band too, whose name's left my mind. But um, very, very nice guy. He was an old college mate of Baz's is how I know him. Um, but he's a fantastic producer, so he I totally trusted him, and he kind of um, he took what we we already had some stuff recorded at the studio in Eastleigh, and he took that and finessed it. I think and it made it sonically much better. And then um, and then he, he came down and stayed for a week in February, and we did all the overdubs in my shed. Um, and he's just one of those madly enthusiastic, wonderful people who's like, let's do some hand claps now, and then right, let's bang this bit of metal with this brush, and then <laughs> you know, and then and just really infused, and and everything he did really added and really worked, and he sort of pulled things out of me that I didn't know were in there. So yeah, really pleased with it. And so what the difficulty has been, we didn't want to put it out to total lockdown, so we've been sitting on it for a little bit, um, but it's good to go now. So we're going to put it out by the end of this year. 
and we've got a single called I Am Afraid, which we're going to put out digitally uh, September the 28th as a kind of warm up for it. Um, and yeah, and see if we can get anyone to listen to it. That's the, that's the challenge. One final thing for me, Dan, if there's anything um, in terms of the, the content that you've produced or from the albums that you've, you've made, what, what would you say, might be a difficult question for you to answer, but what would you say you're most proud of in terms of, you know, how it came together the, lyrically and, and sonically? Oh gosh, that is that is a good question. It might not have to be the best, but it, yeah, not, but it could be the the one that's most important, maybe. Okay, I think the song the song that probably um, I'd say, which is is probably going to get groans from some of my fellow bandmates, um, is a song called James Stewart. Um, so if, if people are listening to this and have made it this far and are thinking, who the hell are these guys? Never heard of it. You want to listen to a song? Um, you know, go on Spotify or whatever. Um, a song called James Stewart for sentimental reasons, really, because it was the first song I wrote. I wrote it when I was 15, I think, which I, which I was really proud of um, and thought, oh, actually, this kind of works. It's quite a, you know, it's quite a nursery rhymish kind of song. Um, but throughout the career of Akron and Stanley, people have liked it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? mm. It's not my best song. It's not, um, you know, I've written far cleverer songs and far, um, I think, more musically adept songs maybe, but it's a song that everyone likes. And I have to remind myself sometimes that that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Write more things that people like, Dan. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, even now when we, if, if we do a Appenger Stanley gig, people will be shouting for that from, you know, from the start. And, and that's a good thing, isn't it? It's like, you know, people like it. So, yeah, can't knock well, it. Thanks ever so much, Dan, for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed talking to you and, and uh, getting to know the details and the nitty gritty about Appenger Stanley and those early formative years it's been really interesting it's great stuff i've loved it cheers massive thank you to dan i really appreciated him coming on and speaking to me about ankerton stanley in the early years and all the trials and tribulations of that band uh, it's a really fantastic story If you like the podcast so far, and I really hope you do, as I always say at this part, um, it'd be really appreciated if you go on to Apple and leave a review for the podcast and give us five stars because it always helps uh, climb the ladder in terms of getting in people's ears. Also, I'm on social media. So just search for Back to Britpop on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Um, I'm often posting bits and pieces from my shed dives. Coming up to the end of this season of the podcast, only probably about one or two episodes left. It's been great fun uh, getting in contact with the bands I loved from the 90s that shaped my uh, musical tastes and uh, got me into music and writing writing songs and being in bands and things. And uh, yeah, it's been an absolute privilege. Um, So hopefully I'll hear you on the next episode. Take care. (laughs) 